Right, well, today's podcast, we are jumping into year eight, theme two, contested power, and the second inquiry. In that, the plan by Mark Hall, what is the inquiry question for this inquiry, Mark, and what is the second order concept driving? Hey, hey. so this, oh, is it sound like a second in there? Um, for this inquiry, we've got, um, when did the monarchy lose its power? And the second order concept we're focusing on is change and continuity. So it's an interesting one because when I start planning it, I do think it's more like causations, like when does it lose its power? But there are various moments where it goes up and down and we're looking like across those monarchs, when is it changing, when has it got continuity? And we've talked before, Rob, about how sometimes you are going to end up doing causation. So there's going to be a lot of moments where we're like doing graph work and you're going to think, oh, is this a causation unit? But you're going to be able to track similarity across it and like do change and continuity as well. Yeah. And there's one of those things, isn't it, where second order concepts, we have the ones driving it, but they do tie into each other. And when kind of actual historians are writing, they're very rarely addressing kind of one of those things. So we've got this idea of change continuity in terms of like power kind of of monarchy across time. I think a key misconception that kind of comes up for me from that from the start is that students just assume, well, we know Queen Elizabeth and kind of her not having very much power. We look at maybe William the Conqueror has lots of power and we get a linear decrease in, in power across that. So I guess what's kind of exciting about like the kind of inquiry you've planned, what actually are we really seeing um, happen to power over time? And probably importantly, which, which monarchs are we looking at as well? So we pick off literally after Charles I has had his head cut off and we sort of focus straight away on, well, we've got Charles Stuart who will become Charles II. And we're picking up the story of him and we're rewinding a little bit to be like, okay, so he's a prince and he's got a lot of power just being a prince on his own. And we start the story there and we take it through like his perspective of like the civil war and his dad going on trial, et cetera. But it's that fact that his power is very, we take it really from the previous monarchs we've looked at and like what we think students are gonna be looking at and look at, well, you can be powerful in one way and not powerful in another. So looking at Charles II, he might have a lot of power in terms of like he's the king, but he's in debt sometimes. So his financial power is actually terrible. And we're sort of looking at these categories and really going to focus on like his religious, his political, his military and his economic power as we go through the reigns. We're going to go from Charles II. We're going to work our way into Charles, uh, James II. And then we're going to finish with William III and Mary. And I think it's really useful that if you've rolled into this from the last inquiry we can keep echoing back and going well James we know was very extravagant for James the first so his economic power is very limited and then we can go into Charles the first and go well actually Charles the first at the beginning of his reign had lots of arguments for parliament but then when he's in his personal rule arguably he's quite absolute like he's not showing power with hardly anyone and it's nice like we can keep retrieving and going back and comparing and that change in continuity really feeds in because Yes, yeah, sure. When does the monarchy lose its power? Well, obviously, when Charles I's head gets cut off, like there isn't a monarchy. But then we're looking at, OK, well, how does it fluctuate over time? Like that's one of the main key words we first encounter is that idea of it fluctuating. It keeps spiking up, it keeps dropping down. Nice. And I think, yeah, if you go look at the kind of end products that you've, you've produced there, um, there's some sense of like differentiation, but, but also quite nicely that, that nuance that comes in of you being able to Kind of say for each monarch how much power they had and make that that judgment for them but then bring out that nuance of that fluctuation across monarchs but also within a monarch's own reign as well which is kind of what you kind of talked about 
Charles I there, and then having that knowledge from the previous inquiry of saying, oh yeah, we've, we've seen this kind of contest over power, lost all the power, and this idea of, well, the monarchy must get some power back because the monarchy returns, but quite how much, for how long, and those different types of it. Um, are some really nice nuances to draw out, and especially really great for high prioritainers. And when I was looking at those end products, I was thinking, maybe there are certain students I'll target saying, actually, you might just be coming to a really firm conclusion about the power of this monarch kind of as, as one idea rather than quite as much throughout their reign. But I think that's yeah. a really nice kind of way to, to target it and to differentiate it and maybe do that beforehand. Think which students am I going to really push for kind of this nuanced fluctuation within reigns and which ones am I looking for that fluctuation uh, kind of um, across monarchs as well. So. I guess if we're thinking there, what what really excited you about planning this? What are kind of the really interesting stories that come out of it? Because you know, reading reading through the anthology, I think it's really nice that you know I've never taught the Great Fire of London before, because like, where does it quite fit in? But you've woven that into this, you know, power of uh, yeah. monarchy as well. I think so. To give a little context, um, I used to teach the Stuarts just flat out at A level for like five years, so. I do know it and it's almost like this unit's made me kind of fall back in love with it again. A bit cheesy, but obviously it's a bit out of, but the idea of power, I think is really, it's something that as teachers, who's your favorite king? Who do you think the king's most powerful? It's, it's a question we constantly get and having the opportunity to just sit down with them all and like explore them. Um, I mean, the Stuarts themselves, this is a period where we have some very, very rapid changes in monarchy. We have very, very contrasting ones, like especially if you add in the Tudors as well, like each monarch really goes a different way with their reign. And when you're looking at the stories, especially after like Charles the First, it's the idea that the idea of a monarchy being a permanent thing is sort of gone. Like we've we when Charles the Second is restored, he's well aware that at any moment his parliament can take that away from him. And you, they're now that, that it's like they're playing a game at this point for how long they can stay, how long they can keep parliament like playing them and making sure they can stay on top because they know full well if they overstep it, that could lead them back. So there's this constant thing in the back of Charles II's mind, like, what can I actually do? And he's second guessing everything he does because he doesn't want to end up like his dad. And when I've been like trying to teach ahead with my year eight, so I'm just like, what we do? What do we see with Charles the first? Why would Charles II not do this? And it's like, it's a strategic game now of being a monarch. It's no longer like divine right, Charles the first, you do as I tell you. And then we've learned from that now. So each monarch really, it's a really good example of like a Game of Thrones of like trying to stay on top <laughs> and keep that power. So there's some really great stories that come out. And I think we're carrying forward like this really great thing about religion and how powerful religion is. And it can essentially knock you off the throne. So when we're looking at Charles II, especially in the interregnum, where we start with him, he's hiding in exile, he's running away from people. And that first story, I was so happy to find it about, he goes and sits down with Colonel Popham three years into him being restored. And he's in the dining room and he's literally having dinner with a man who chased him out of Wales when he was a teenager, fighting in the opposite army, who's responsible really for his dad getting executed. And you, the room is littered with muskets and stuff that were probably pointed at him as he was. And it's the idea of, why is he sitting down with this man? Why is he? And it's, yeah, Parliament now have a lot more power than they ever have done. You have to play the game. You have to sit with people you don't like and try and get them. And we know from Charles First Unit that subsidies are still a really important thing. We need to make sure that the monarch's got like a rolling finance. Um, so it's, it's that game being played constantly. I mean, yeah, the Great Fire of London. I mean, I've taught that a lot of different ways. And I like how this one, 
you know, this is, and I, I love the fact that my students can go, wasn't it a bakery? Like something they will have probably heard about primary school. I'm like, wasn't it a bakery? And we end on the story like, Charles is effectively a hero in this. He's in the middle of the fire. He's like a king leading from the front, paying the workers, directing which houses to come down. And at the end of it, they're like, you know what? This was a Catholic. This was definitely a Catholic. And there is no physical evidence. But this, I really amp up, and I think it's something that teachers need to do, amp up this paranoia that is here about Catholic monarchs. And once we have like a full rolling year of this curriculum, like even this year, my students have done Mary the first. It's that idea of constantly, what is a like Catholic monarch looking like? And we go, yeah. well, look at Mary the first. Last time they had a Catholic monarch, she burnt 300 people approximately, etc. I had a year eight do that. I was just, just teaching the Charles first inquiry at the moment and a year eight to the other day, like, oh, but yeah, you know, why why is it such a problem? Catherine I said, remember what happened. And it is just, just nudging that prior. And she's like, oh yeah, I, now remembering first, like burning people. Like that's constantly in people's minds. And I think that, that beauty of that sequencing comes through when you can just reliably go back to that and it makes so much sense. And also think just to, to add in terms of where the sequencing is going with that, when we come on to the Enlightenment, what I really like about it is this emphasis on how much religion is dictating what people think. And then suddenly within the space of maybe, you know, kind of 100 years, like religion's still going to be there, but it's no longer having that influence, which is why it's kind of so shocking because we've emphasised how much power religion has had. And I really like that. That sequencing kind of... Yeah, that, I, the Enlightenment, I'm really excited for us to like go through because I mean, in terms of sequencing, like we've got probably my second favorite character of this unit, because I'll get into William the Third later, who I absolutely adore. Um, but Louis the Fourteenth, very contrasting to Louis the Sixteenth when we get by the time of the Revolution. And like, I'm really love the portrait we've put in the anthology of it's Louis depicting himself as this Roman general, this obsession with being looking like you're powerful. Who do you compare yourself to? Roman. You've got God giving him a banner and like getting through to my students. His name, his christened name, so before he took the name of Louis, literally translated as God's gift. His parents were like waiting for him for like 15, 20 years. They couldn't conceive. And he takes it to heart. He's generally like the sun king. He thinks that France revolves around him like it. And the whole idea, if you've been prepping your students on divine right, you're yeah. going to see it taken. Basically, Louis takes divine right and puts it on steroids. He is insane. And like <laughs> the idea that people orbit him really inspired by Versailles, that expansion of that palace, when you get to see it in the anthology, is just courtiers want to hang around him, whereas parliament in our country, so different, they don't want to hang around. And we're bringing in that theory of like, okay, we've got these other European powers, we talk about France, we're connecting up almost like preempting this empire. So, you know, we'll probably see the French again when we look at the Haitian Revolution in the slavery unit, we'll see like the different empires when we look at empire later, but they're very different. And like, Parliament are constantly looking at Catholic France going, we cannot have a man who is like this, who doesn't rule with a parliament at all. I mean, obviously, if we look forward, we know where that gets the French with the revolution. But I think the real misconception when I first started teaching this was like Parliament's fear is of Catholicism. And it's more that, you know, things like decorated churches and like vestments and services, prayer books being in Latin, whatever. It's more the indication that you will end up with a Catholic king like Louis who relies on divine right. So when we get kids, as, oh, it's Charles I or Charles II, are they afraid of introducing like decorated churches? No, no, but it indicates he's going towards the same thing. And France is right there. They're watching it all the time. They don't want this situation where they don't get a say. Yeah. And I think it's really important to emphasize like Louis in that moment. 
And I think one of the things is if you look at the kind of end product, what, what we've kind of chosen to do is use that graph. And we've kind of spoken about that a little bit. And obviously the second order concept kind of change the continuity. What is the power of the of the graph uh, kind of throughout the unit? I think so. When I was originally doing the graph, like you, you obviously start off at that power level, and each moniker has power here, power there. And what I really like about it is once we're doing these graphs regularly, there's such good ways to deliver feedback, in my opinion. Like I think that's really powerful. Like if you're looking at a graph, and in 1649, a student has put that the monarchy's got power, instantly you're addressing a misconception there and then. And like the graphs, as I scaled them as we went down like the end product when you see it in the actual resources like you can see that you know the monarchy should never have power in 1649 and it should be really weak in 1701 when we get to the act of settlement and like that's pretty much it for the monarchy but you can you've got your markers where students need to know these dates and that's how their end product's going to be successful but then in between that we're getting them to develop their interpretation of like how powerful do you think this monarch is so it's it's got definitely got a really good use of feedback in it, but then it's got some freedom to allow students to like weigh up these monarchs. I and mean, we've already had arguments in my class about do we think Charles II is actually as powerful as he thinks he is? And right. yeah, it's that idea of like, again, it's so subtle that he makes lots of promises and then he's telling Louis, oh yeah, I'll convert to Catholicism. I'll do it, mate, give me some money. And he doesn't do it until his deathbed. And it's like, is he powerful because he's being being played, but at the same time he's playing the game as well. So it's up to the students to decide how powerful he actually is. Right, and I think it's that idea. You know, we've kind of talked about mental models kind of quite a lot and seen different ones, but that idea of you know change continuity a graph is just a really good way to visually rep represent that. Uh, and especially if you've got maybe like different things like talk about military power, religious power, actually you can represent them differently on a on a graph and make an overall judgment. And you've got that nuance within it to see. And as you said, like actually visible for students is really great, but visible for like as a teacher as well, you can just address misconceptions really quickly and say, oh yeah, exactly, 1649. But you put loads of well, have you know you must have misunderstood what's what's going on there, um, which I think is a really kind of great way to express exactly like change of continuity because you're you're seeing it as they go and also i think our, our you know the hope is that especially by, by year eight those kind of graph skills should be coming across another subject that line graph they should have kind of um done that in math and thing they understand what yeah. that's that's showing and then also can apply that mental model to kind of other uh, aspects of change and continuity um as well but I, I like that thing of just saying actually you know there's no one quite right answer to this. It allows students that that, that chance to develop yeah. their thinking. Like, how far up does it go? How uh, how far down does it does it dip? If you're saying yeah. absolute, if you're saying none, you know, like, and it's really easy for you as a teacher then to do some. Um, Oh, what's it called? It's not self-collaboration. It's the it's the other one where you know you you just drop in some counter examples and say, well, you put it here, but. I'm going to challenge you. What about this? And then you yeah. can draw that out from from students. You know, right. saying, having some. How would you react to that? Would you change it, or have you got an argument to say yes, but I'm keeping it here because? And I love that kind of development. It's a great way to like getting you know the iPads quickly taking a snap, putting it on the board, two two graphs next to each other. Right, they consistently show no power in 1649. Great, we're all on there. Why are they varying it here? Oh, well, I focus more on military power. Oh, I focus more on religious power. And you get to see that complexity and like students will get to see like, oh, I'm not wrong. Like, I'm developing this interpretation. And when the monarchy loses its power, really, that's down to the student. 
Yeah. So that inquiry is setting them up for having that interpretation, not we're getting to this end point and that's when it ends. No, it's just more when we're thinking about it. No, and I like, again, addressing that misconception that it just linearly, linear, linearly decreases over time and therefore it loses power wherever the end of the thing is. And I really like that idea. Um, and I've done that before with graphs and getting a student up, draw their graph or put it on the board, take a picture, put it on the board, getting them to explain it and then getting other students involved. And it's a really good way to have a more nuanced kind of debate rather than just setting it up as change, continuity, what changes, what's, what stays the same. Yeah. I think it's some really great stuff from that. Um, I think you kind of already covered it. What would you really be emphasizing when you're teaching this? And obviously you've actually like, gone through and, and kind of taught this already. What has it been really helpful to emphasize to make this really accessible to students and to help really push students as well? So I think I've already mentioned a little bit, but that connection between divine right and Catholicism. So they're not, you know, they always have to be together. But the thing is, Parliament, that's where they've seen it. They've seen Catholic monarchs abroad use divine right. They've seen Charles I influenced again by a lot of Catholicism and keep reiterating after you've done Charles I, right, Henrietta Maria is influencing Charles. Well, Charles has actually been, Charles II is influenced by Henrietta Maria as well. And he's been exiled in France for most of his childhood. So Catholicism is influencing him and he's gonna, he's absorbing like role models who are telling him, oh, well, kings don't bow to no one. And you, you have to get the divine right, but it's coming from Catholic influences. But at the same time, we shouldn't be saying that Charles II is a definite Catholic. Right. He's just playing the game and it's a belief that he really strongly likes. I think that's the same with Charles I and James I. I don't think you'd ever label them explicitly as Catholics, but the, the idea of divine right really appeals to them. So yeah. that's where you need to make that distinction. But it comes from uh, when we've been ramping it up in the lessons, really get that paranoia about Catholicism because it's actually not really that there. Like until 1670, when he signs the secret treaty of Dover with Louis, there is, he, there's a lot of Catholic influences going on, but at no point has anybody ever said, like, his brother's right there, openly Catholic, and Charles has never gone, I'm openly Catholic. Like, he's done a lot of stuff shady, so he's married his wife a second time of a Catholic service, more for her benefit than for his. Right. And he's, like, you know, signed a treaty with Louis, but he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't deal with it until the end of his life. He's not bothered in becoming a Catholic. He just wants to make rule independently. He wants to be an absolute monarch, but don't think that he wants to be a Catholic monarch because that's the misconception we want to avoid. Um, I guess if we're talking about the limitations on each of these different monarchs we look at, what would you be emphasising? So like, if we're talking about Charles I, what is the, the limitation on, on him? And when we get through to William III, uh, what's the, what is the limitation you'd emphasise on, on their powers? Really, you need to really emphasise the importance of finance. I think every single one of these monarchs is having an underlying issue, which we've seen since the Tudors, like Elizabeth has left this in an absolute state and you're tracking it through. And every time they do an action, it looks like, so we just did your child's first lesson on tonnage and poundage. And he is limited because of his father's like poor financial responsibilities. And they all think, oh, he's divine right, he's divine right. No, but he's using divine right to solve an issue that wasn't his fault. When we get to uh, William III, sadly, his amazing like, I just love his routine completely for anybody that doesn't know just yet. He comes in and just wants to wage war with France. He is the one monarch who just doesn't care about this petty squabble over who's in charge, whatever. He's willing to sacrifice as much power as possible just to have a fight with France, um, which from a small country like the Netherlands, like hold them off is, I think, impressive as it is. But as soon as the Treaty of Ryswick is signed and there's like a stalemate, 
parliament are then like, right, we're stopped fighting. We don't need to fund you at all anymore. You don't need the soldiers. And suddenly his power just dwindles because he's he's been sacrificing it all to get the money. The army at this point is really ready. He's set up the British state for, to start empire. Like the Navy is incredible at this point. They can fight France on their own. They don't even need the Dutch anymore. But at the, it gets to this thing where, well, we don't want a standing army because we've had that issue before. Like kings shouldn't have them. We can't trust them with them really. Um, and he just, all of the power, he's, he's traded it off. And now he's realized actually, if there's not an emergency of fighting France, then I've got no power anymore. Like, but he's done, he's fine, he's accomplished his aims. And that sets up the monarchy for like this modern day period of parliaments, the permanent event uh, institution, and the monarchy is now just this frail thing in the background. And that's why actually I, I liked reading through kind of the anthology and the lessons, that, that idea of that switch between parliament being called by the king to then parliament being that static institution, you know, in terms of it, it is now there. <laughs> to meet parliament right and i and i think that that that's a nice thing to emphasize as well that we've seen this this switch that the king's no longer dissolving parliament and and getting rid of them and i think that's i've been emphasizing that in the charles first unit the more i teach it the more i realize i'm emphasizing that like parliament think they the king has to ask them permission like they really really do that's their key biting point like the king has to ask them permission then they're not doing it and i think that yeah the control over finance is quite an interesting argument to, to look at over where that can kind of control is and doing those types of things. Um, how do you reckon your, you know, if, if as a tool, how's your thinking changed since you started planning the unit? You know, you went in with a lot of background knowledge on this from having taught um, what Stuart's uh, A-levels, but when looking to this particular inquiry with this particular focus, has your thinking shifted from the, from the start? I mean, I think I'm making a lot more links between the power. So we've done a lot of work in this unit of like, the argument of how do you know it's power? So a couple of examples already moved to mind. So the Treaty of Dover with Charles II signing it, he gives away some ships and some army sport, promises to give away some religious, like basically says he'll convert and Louis will give him money. So it's that exchange of powers. And in one of the lessons, we start using the word correlation. And it's that at no point does someone just decline. They're always trying to gain something else. Right. So you need to really understand the relationships between like, okay, at this... This is where for using formative to address these turning points, understanding, right, what power is lost in the Treaty of Dover, what power is gained in the Treaty of Dover, making that really clear to students that at no point does a monarch just simply lose all power unless it's, we're talking like the execution. And we talk about <laughs> Charles as like being a prince abroad. He still does have some power. Like the Scots yeah. call him over and offer him the crown. They offer him terms, which again, He's trading it. He's getting some legal, official, political power in Scotland. But he promises to the amount of times Charles II promises to convert just to get the crown of the place is unbelievable. Like it should show you that he really doesn't care that much. As long as he's in church on a Sunday, I don't yeah. think he's that bothered. But it's just that idea that there's a trade off. There's always this constant trade off. And with William, it's really emphasized where he just completely tunnel visions military power. To get it, he needs finance. They reform the entire system. And I think it's really nice callback to what has constantly been a source of the arguments between Parliament and the monarchy, subsidies. And William is the monarch that that system goes. You've now got just the Bank of England. They remove, they don't have conversations anymore. The king just goes to the bank and asks for a loan. And that, right. that relationship's now mended because they're not constantly battling out for what can I have, what can you have? But 
obviously when we get to the end, he has sacrificed it all. He's signed it all, but he's he's achieved what he wanted to achieve. And I think the idea of like some monarchs want to just be powerful monarchs, like Charles II, what sees Louis across the channel and wants to emulate him. And William doesn't care about any of that. He, you know, he's not bothered about giving the kingdom over for succession. So doesn't have the same arguments that Charles II has when he's trying to get his brother. Um, and I know I've not talked about James II a lot because I was thinking about it and power. And I'm like, you know, for such a short period, don't, he's probably very, very powerful, like in my opinion, but it's such a short period. I don't really think you could say he's that powerful a monarch if he can't stay on the throne long enough. Right. And I was thinking that kind of relate to Charles I that, that the, the attempt to maintain or secure that power is the thing that undermines it as well, right? The, that trade-off there is you're trading essentially support for like wielding power at that point. And I think that's a nice thing to think about. That's that really resonated with me actually what you were saying, that idea of trading like, yeah. power. And actually it's this idea of, maybe it comes back to, it doesn't like need to, to feature too much, but power versus powers, you know, and that idea of like, oh, they can yeah. do this, but like actually what does that do to their power that they have? The, the there's, a lot of, there's a lot of those moments in this unit where you're like, and you pause and you ask that question, you go, can a monarch be powerful if, so the Scots are offering him the crown, but if they're offering him it, is right. it his? It's not <laughs> that you can't say he's powerful because who's giving it? And you go, William, who's making him swear this new oath later on? Who invites William to take the crown? So yes, William turns up with the army. And that's one of my favorite stories of the whole inquiry is just the second time we get invaded by a William and <laughs> people are still arguing about it shouldn't be called an invasion. People are waving at him on the streets. The, army, the army meets him and defects instantly and turns back around and joins him. Like, there's not an invasion by this William the Conqueror. It's literally just he walks in, takes it. But then he has to bargain. He's he's the one with the army and Parliament is still... It shows you the real rise of power in Parliament where they will tell you if they want you to be their king. And that's that de facto monarch. In reality, he's the king. But they say it's James II. I think in de facto he's king. But Parliament actually at this point... Oh, I think that's interesting. It takes me back to like what the ways in the past I've kind of taught monarchy. And basically, I, I really remember, I think, beginning of my career. So what makes a powerful monarch? It's like support of the people, uh, wealth and, and like military. And actually, this is a really nice example where Williams got that, maybe from the, the financial side, which comes from Parliament. But he's still not that powerful because Parliament's offering him the, the, the crown, you know. And we're in year eight now, so maybe we go to that level of thinking yeah. that... It's just bizarre that he's in London and they're arguing over the oath that he has to take and like changing the clauses of a contract. Like he's clearly being offered it, like trapped into a contractual agreement yeah. to get a throne. So he's not powerful, but he's threatening to walk out. Like he's got an army outside. Like he could easily just like take out these Muppets. But he's just, it shows really like powers a very abstract thing in some examples. Like don't just think of it as who's got the biggest guns, who's got the most money, like actually that support his support of parliament is what makes him a powerful monarch and i think that would be like you know we, we've said that power is one of those big narratives running through the curriculum and i think the kind of succession of units like i mean i mean across but also that kind of where we are in year eight and the sequencing is really pushing hopefully pushing student thinking with that and saying like power great we've still got we've seen religion being so influential kind of all the way through year seven up to this point still here but actually we're seeing kind of that, that growth of like parliamentary power it's maybe decline in monarchical power but again it's I think it's quite an interesting kind of place to be and and that maybe a turning point before we get into kind of the enlightenment and see see some yeah. kind of changing changing things um 
I think one useful thing is, is there a resource that you read, podcast, book, film, documentary, that you think like is a kind of must for improving people's subject knowledge further? Um, so, I mean, for me with both, so we did a bit of work on the Charles Foster as well. And it's the idea of like Mark Kishlansky's actual book is, you know, the transformation of the monarchy from 1603 through right till 1714. And it covers both inquiries. So I think it's the, the best one for both inquiries. Like you get a you know, two for one deal if you just use that resource. So Mark Kishlansky's book is he does constantly like reiterate like previous monarchs, like what's going on, like where, and he really focuses on power. That's the transformation of the monarchy and the rise of parliament. So that's probably the best thing that I've read for both of the units, yeah. Nice, cracking. Any final thoughts, anything else you'd want to relay to people about this, this inquiry? I think, so as I'm planning the empire unit now, <laughs> I'm fore foreseeing the connections and like, Right, so I don't go over it because obviously we're limited in what we can focus on. We're focusing on Europe, but we've got the introductory of the European powers. So the Dutch, the French, and the English. And the idea that, you know, when we get to empire, we're going to be looking at how the rise of the navy really is. The 1600s is the birthplace of empire. And it's de debated, but we're going to be looking at like, you know, at this point, Elizabeth's already sent people to trade in India. We've already getting Charles II's marriage to... Um, Catherine of Braganza has already got them like some colonies somewhere. One of the Dutch wars leads to New Amsterdam falling into the English hands and then renaming it New York. So, <laughs> and the kids finding that out, they were like, yeah, it's much better sounding now. But it's, empire's already, we're already looking at it. And I think when, uh, hopefully Catherine, who's going to be doing a podcast on her uh, slavery unit, uh, Charles II is really behind the scenes. It's not something I knew about until I saw David Olasoga's documentary about the Royal African Company and like the Stuarts are really at the heart of a lot of the future sequences that we're going to be playing out. I think that's really important to think about. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've already seen again, like Mayflower go over during James the first reign. And then we also see obviously the kind of like Puritan massive migration during the reign of Charles the first as well, setting up uh, Amer Amer like America in, the, in this kind of period, uh, which we'll come back to as part of the revolutions and as part of the, the empire as well. So I think it is that uh, there's so many connections to be like explicitly linked to of prior learning at this point and also setting up future learning, which I think is really great as well. Right. Well, thank you, Mark, for that in-depth coverage of uh, this inquiry. I um, hope you all enjoyed it and we'll be back with another one soon.